These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. In this episode, we're going to continue on the theme of transformation and explore the myth of an arrogant mother whose boasting causes the downfall of her children and results in her own transformation into an eternally grieving part of the landscape. The mother is Niobe, who gets into some hot water when she insults the goddess Leto, and she becomes a symbol of human arrogance and overweening pride. In other words, she gets her comeuppance, losing all that is dear to her, and she spends the rest of eternity as a picture of grief. A reminder to all humanity that we mortals must be careful not to place too much faith in our own possessions, for the gods can take it all away from us at one minute in dramatic fashion. Like the myth of Daphne, the subject of our last episode, this is a myth of transformation or metamorphosis. But unlike the Daphne story, it seems to be a very old tale, playing a role in the most important part of the great epic story, the last book of the Iliad. So sit back and enjoy another episode of the Greek Myth Files. I was in South Carolina when it happened. I was wrapping up a breakfast of shrimp and grits at the hotel and was reading the local paper when I saw the picture I'd grown accustomed to for some three years. What I'm talking about is the rock formation in Franconia, New Hampshire, commonly called the Old Man in the Mountain. This was a sharp-jawed profile with what I imagined was a very bushy set of eyebrows, hinting at a sort of tough independence modern New Hampshire folk are supposed to be known for. The image of the old man was everywhere, a local icon that was first identified by settlers in 1805, and I mean everywhere. You would see it on license plates, on road signs, and on merchandise in every off-road shop. And the image is still omnipresent in the state. You really can't go far without being reminded of that vivid picture that nature had somehow produced. Naturally, the image called the Old Man in the Mountain existed before European settlers had written about it in 1805. The indigenous Abenaki people tell a story about Stoneface, a heartbreaking story that, in 2003, came full circle. It involves a strong and able leader called Niskizos, a name meaning two moons, who fell in love with a woman from a nearby village named Tarlo. Tarlo had visited Niskisos's village, where they fell in love, but she had to return to her original village. Niskisos, worried about the passage, accompanied her to the mountain and promised to stay there until she could return. He lit fires each night to show his beloved the way back. Summer passed, and then fall turned into winter. Members of Niskisos's village came to him, pleading for him to return but he did not want to abandon his lover. As it happens, the winter was brutal and killed many, including Tarlo and many of her village. When Niskizos' fellow people came again to bring him home, they could not find him. 
They started down the mountain, and when they turned around, the face appeared to them. Nizkizos had, after all, turned into a stone sentinel of the mountain, looking over the land, a protective figure. Well, on May 3, 2003, the rock formation collapsed, despite human attempts to intervene to prevent the cracks that had started forming as early as the 1920s from bringing the whole thing down. Chains, cement, steel rods, and turnbuckles held out for a bit, but they could not prevent the inevitable. Now there only stands a formless cliff ridge, and if you had not known what was there before, you would not even have given it a second look. The collapse was lamented across the state. The old man of the mountain, the icon of our hardy folk, was gone. And the news had reached all the way to South Carolina, where I read the story over a paradoxically delicious breakfast. The Abenaki, for their part, have a different take. Niz Kizos had finally reunited with his beloved, and the collapse was seen as a concluding phase of a love story, not a disastrous calamity. This past May was the 20th anniversary of the collapse of the rock formation, and it reminds me of another rock face that perhaps prompted a very important Greek mythical story. On Mount Sipolis, on the west coast of what is today modern Turkey, sits a rock formation that looks strikingly like a woman with streams of water pouring down her face, tears of a woman in grief. It's been that way since the ancient period. The Greek travel writer Pausanias, who seems to have been born and raised under the gaze of that rock woman, is reminded of his childhood home when talking about a grotto above the theater in Athens. And here's what he has to say. At the top of the theater is a cave in the rocks under the Acropolis. This also has a tripod over it, wherein are Apollo and Artemis slaying the children of Niobe. This Niobe I myself saw when I had gone up to Mount Sipolis. When you are near, it is a beetling crag with not the slightest resemblance to a woman, mourning or otherwise. But if you go further away, you will think you see a woman in tears with head bowed down. Niobe's plight was so popular that it was frequently depicted in literature and in art. She can be seen on wall paintings, on religious dedications like the tripod in Athens, and in extensive statuary programs that depict the deaths of Niobe's children in action throughout the ancient world. So, what was Niobe's great offense that brought down the wrath of Apollo and Artemis on her and her children? We'll cover that after a short break. So, who was Niobe, and what's the full story? We first have to go back a generation earlier to her father, Tantalus, whose hometown was located in a place called Lydia, which is near Mount Sipolos. Tantalus is most famous for his brutal murder of his son Pelops and his presentation of human flesh to the Olympian gods as a test of their godly omniscience. This does not go well. Tantalus's trick is discovered, he is punished, and Pelops is put back together with the addition of an ivory shoulder fashioned to replace the one the goddess Demeter had eaten in her own grief. Pelops is Niobe's brother, and she, like him, was destined to leave Lydia and travel to what we might think of as Greece proper. 
We'll come back to Pelops in a later episode, but he became so powerful that the peninsula of Greece was, and still is, called the Peloponnesus, or Pelops Island. Feel free to visit our website, manto-myth.org backslash gmf, for a map to show the locations in this episode and other pieces of art. As for Niobe, she too went to Greece, marrying one of the founders of the city of Thebes to the north of the Peloponnesus. This bit of the story actually stumped me for a while. Pelops went to the Peloponnesus to win a wife, but I never knew why Niobe moved from her hometown to go to Greek Thebes. After a fairly extensive search of the ancient literature, I feel rather secure that we have no extant version that explains why the founding figure Amphion married Niobe, while his twin brother Zethus married a local woman named Thebe, which of course explains the name of the city, Thebes. I'll provide a possible explanation at the end of this podcast, but what is certain is that Niobe's role in myth is centered in Greek Thebes. As often, the story of Niobe and her arrogance is best told in all its literary brilliance by the poet Ovid, whose long epic poem, Metamorphoses, is full of not only the bare bones of the myth, but also an elaborate description of Niobe's problematic state of mind and the emotional toil that her pride brings her. In a brilliant stroke, Ovid tells the story of Niobe immediately after a story of Arachne, who was a woman who likewise was arrogant, who insulted the goddess Athena, and was turned into a spider after a reality TV-like face-off in a weaving contest. We'll cover that wonderful myth in a later episode, but we'll have to leave it there for the moment. But like Arachne, Niobe is originally from the east coast of modern-day Turkey, so Ovid can link the two episodes geographically and thematically. As Ovid tells us, Niobe had known Arachne, but this was before Niobe had gone to marry Amphion, one of the founders of Greek Thebes, and moved away. Now, Ovid tells us that Arachne's punishment had gone viral, well, as viral as things could go before social media, but the whole world was talking about it, including in Thebes. This is actually quite clever on Ovid's part. He has, almost by sleight of hand, taken the reader from Niobe's hometown across the Aegean to Greek Thebes, where she now lives. And Ovid tells us Niobe's got it all. A talented husband who's a world-class singer and lyre player. Her and her husband have powerful and important families. And she's a queen of a major city, Thebes. And finally, and most importantly for this podcast, she's got a whole slew of children, 14 of them to be exact. This is the situation when Ovid tells us that there's a prophecy that the townspeople of Thebes should wear laurel wreaths and go celebrate the worship of the goddess Latona, that's Greek Leto, and her children, Apollo and Diana. For those of you who want to know more about a story concerning the origin of Apollo's fetish with the laurel tree, we invite you to listen to our most recent episode. Anyway, when Niobe hears all the hubbub about these new gods, Latona, Apollo, Diana, she is not pleased. But we'll let Ovid describe her reaction. Look, Niobe comes, followed by a crowded thong, visible in her Phrygian robes woven with gold, and as beautiful as anger will let her be. Turning her lovely head, with the hair falling loose over both her shoulders, she pauses and looks around with pride in her eyes from her full height, saying, 
What madness to prefer the gods you were told about to the ones you see? Why is Latona worshipped at the altars, while as yet my divinity lacks incense? Tantalus is my father, who is the only man to eat the food of the gods. My mother is one of the seven sisters, the Pleiades. Great Atlas, who carries the axis of the heavens on his shoulders, is one of my grandfathers. Jupiter is the other, and I glory in having him as my father-in-law as well. The peoples of Phrygia fear me. Cadmus's royal house is under my rule, and the walls built to my husband's lyre. And Thebes's people will be ruled by his power and mine. Whichever part of the palace I turn my eyes on, I look at immense wealth. Augment it with my beauty, worthy of a goddess, and add to this my seven daughters, as many sons, and soon my sons and my daughters-in-law. Now, ask what the reason is for my pride, and then dare to prefer Latona to me, that titaness, daughter of Coius, whoever he is. Latona, whom the wide earth once refused even a little piece of ground to give birth on. Ovid draws on all the connections Niobe has to other powerful Greek gods and heroes. In other words, Ovid really knows his myth. She's got two gods, Jupiter and Atlas, as grandfathers. Her mother is a goddess, one of the Pleiades that now reside in the sky as constellation of that name. Her dad's a famous hero. Okay, we'll leave aside the fact that he did some pretty horrible things to his son. Plus, Niobe's also a queen. And to top it all off, she's married to a magical singer who, with the power of his music, made stones move on their own accord to build the walls of Thebes. And here, in that city, no one is paying her honor as a goddess. But some nobody goddess, daughter of some nobody titan, is getting all the attention? Huh, she couldn't even find a place to give birth. Bah humbug indeed. But then she tops it off by going after Latona directly. Land, sea, and sky were no refuge for your goddess. She was exiled from the world until Delos, pitying the wanderer, gave her a precarious place, saying, Friend, you wander the earth, I the sea. There she gave birth to twins, only a seventh of my offspring. I am fortunate. Who can deny it? And I will stay fortunate. Who can doubt that, too? My riches make me safe. I am greater than any whom fortune can harm. And though she could take much away, she would leave me much more. Surely my comforts banish fear. Imagine that some of this host of children could be taken from me. I would still not, bereaved, be reduced to the two of Latona's family. Now, I'm pretty sure all of you know exactly where this is going, following the very basic rule of Greek myth. Don't piss off the gods. Well, Niobe did, and so Latona expresses her outrage to her children, Apollo and Diana, who basically say in the ancient version, hold my beer, or would it be hold my nectar? Anyway, they set out to punish this woman. 
Apollo first dispatches Niobe's sons, firing arrows into them as they practice their horseback riding outside the city walls. When Niobe realizes this, she runs out to mourn them. But has she learned her lesson? She has not, but she doubles down on her certainty that she remains superior to Latona, who only has two children. She threw herself on the cold bodies, and without regard for due ceremony, gave all her sons a last kiss. Turning from them, she lifted her bruised arms to the sky and cried out, Feed your heart, cruel one, Latona, on my pain. Feed your heart and be done. Be done, savage spirit. I am buried seven times. Exult and triumph over your enemy? But where is the victory? Even in my misery, I have more than you in your happiness. After so many deaths, I still outdo you. As she utters these still careless remarks, a twang is heard. Diana starts firing at her daughters. One by one, like their brothers, they are cut down. Niobe watches as six of her daughters are killed for her arrogance. Only one remains. The mother, with all her robes and with her body, protected her and cried out, Leave me just one, the youngest. I only ask for one, the youngest of all. While she prayed, she, for whom she prayed, was dead. Childless, she sat among the bodies of her sons, her daughters, and her husband, frozen in grief. The breeze stirs not a hair, the color of her cheeks is bloodless, and her eyes are fixed motionless in her sad face. Nothing in that likeness is alive. Inwardly, her tongue is frozen to the solid roof of her mouth, and her veins cease their power to throb. Her neck cannot bend, nor her arms recall their movement, nor her feet lead her anywhere. Inside, her body is stone. Yet she weeps, and, enclosed in a powerful whirlwind, she is snatched away to her own country. There, set on a mountaintop, she wears away, and even now tears flow from the marble. In our last episode, we remarked that the metamorphosis myth involving Daphne was not an old story. At least, we have no evidence that the tale of Daphne's metamorphosis into a laurel tree predates the 4th century BC. But Niobe's tale seems to be a very old one. In fact, the story is found in the moving and powerful last book of the Iliad as an example of how to deal with grief. For those not familiar with the Iliad, it is an epic story of loss and redemption or rather about loss and coping with that. Achilles, out of anger, withdraws from the Trojan War, and as the Greeks suffer injuries and setbacks, his childhood friend Patroclus grows upset at the pain of his friends. He begs Achilles to give him his arms and armor so that he can go out and give them some breathing room. He does so. Patroclus goes out to help, only to die at the hands of the Trojan Hector, the son of King Priam. When Achilles learns this, he is beside himself at the situation that he is mainly responsible for and goes on a killing spree until he kills Hector. But instead of respecting the dead body, he mutilates it by dragging it around behind his chariot around the tomb of Patroclus. Old King Priam, 
inconsolable, sneaks through the whole Greek army and into Achilles' tent with the help of the gods. There, he meets his son's killer, and they both break down because of the miseries of war and loss. Finally, Achilles agrees to return the body to Priam, and will let Homer tell the rest. With this, noble Achilles returned to the hut, and sat down again on his richly inlaid chair opposite Priam, saying, Venerable Lord, your son's body has been placed on a bier, and I shall release it to you as you wished. At dawn you may look on him and carry him back, but now let us eat. Even long-haired Niobe eventually thought to eat, though her twelve children had been slain, six daughters, six sons in their prime. Apollo, angry that Niobe had boasted of bearing so many children compared with Leto, who had borne but two, killed the sons with arrows from his silver bow, while his sister Artemis killed the daughters. The pair slew them all and left them lying in their blood for nine days, since Zeus had turned the people to stone and there was no one to bury the corpses. On the tenth day, the heavenly gods gave them burial, and only then did Niobe, exhausted by her grief, take sustenance. Now, turned to stone herself, she stands among the crags on the desolate slopes of Sipolis, where men say the nymphs that dance on the banks of Achelous take their rest, and broods on the sorrows the gods sent her. Come, let us too take sustenance, venerable lord. In Ilium you can lament your son once more, and grieve for him with a flood of tears. The phrase, even Niobe ate, became proverbial at Greek funerals to remind us that the living, no matter how many ills the world throws at us, have to keep on living. Priam had lost a son, Niobe, twelve children. She had found a way to return to some normalcy, and so should Priam. As it happens, Homer places the loss of her children and Niobe's transformation in the area of Mount Sipolos itself, not in Thebes in Greece. And there seems to have been some debate as to exactly what took place where. An ancient commentator to the Iliad gives us a summary. Some say Niobe's ordeal took place in Lydia, others in Thebes. While Sophocles in a lost play gives the version that her children were killed in Thebes, but then she migrated back home where she turned to stone, which accords basically with Ovid's more dramatic version, where a whirlwind takes her back to her homeland, and we have several mythographers whose accounts agree. The myth is, of course, rooted to a specific location in the landscape, in Lydia, so its transfer to Greek Thebes must be the latter adaptation. And it may have been purposely moved to Thebes, with a change to 14 children, 7 males and 7 females, to explain the origin of its 7 gates and 7 pyres, funeral pyres. But all of this, of course, is pure speculation, and we'll leave it there. This has been another episode of the Greek Myth Files, our 25th, which marks something of a milestone. We appreciate you listening as we explore the world of Greek myth, which is, as always, brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire. Every episode, we showcase our student talent in voice acting, sound engineering, writing, and art. And we'd love to hear your feedback and comments at our dedicated website, manto-myth.org backslash gmf. For this episode, I'd like to thank our new voice actor, Raina Burke. The music has been graciously supplied by Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. 
who is also professor of music at West Virginia University, where, I must add, the Board of Trustees has savagely cut many programs, including languages and music. You should protest and find ways to support the humanities. These important programs are threatened not just there, but across the whole nation. And it's up to listeners like you who understand the need for history, art, literature, and music to be part, and perhaps the most important part, of the human experience.